Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons. My name is Paul and this is a podcast about Utopia where we cover utopias, dystopias, thinkers and movements through fiction, film, video games and all sorts of other things. This episode is about a uh, something that is partly uh, an idea, partly a movement and that is something called degrowth and the way I'm going to be approaching that primarily is uh, through a book that I've read to uh, kind of introduce me to the concept which is called Exploring Degrowth, A Critical Guide. Um, that was rinse, written by Vincent Ligier and Anitra Nelson and they will be my guests on this episode. Um, so they're going to be talking to me about this book and ab- about degrowth, um, what that means, um, why it's important. So Vincent is a um, uh, an engineer and researcher. He is uh, He's French, which is significant in the sense that degrowth uh, is an idea which kind of originally formed in France. And Anitra Nelson is a a self-described activist scholar who is affiliated with the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute at the University of Melbourne. Um, So yeah, they've written this book and they're they're guesting on this episode to talk to me about degrowth. Uh, Before we get started with that, just a, a couple of things. I think this will probably be the last main episode this year we'll, we'll see if I can squeeze something else in but as I mentioned before in the previous episode I'm very much looking forward to to uh what I've got planned for next year so so um yeah just to reiterate I'm I'm trying to um plan things a bit better in terms of what's been difficult this year is having a lot of episodes that required me to read books and not having a lot of free time and and kind of the just the level of like research preparing for them makes getting episodes up slower um I feel like I haven't done I don't know maybe I'm wrong <laughs> feels like I've done a film for ages but obviously like watching a film is easier to get done um than 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 uh, yeah reading a book every episode so I've got uh yeah I've got a whole list of list of um ideas some stuff ideas for episodes some stuff that's been on the list for ages but a lot of a lot of new stuff that I've I've kind of um slotted in with this in mind of trying to get some episodes in that are, are easier to um it's sort of yeah just quicker and easier to turn around and I hope that will reduce that will result in a slightly um more frequent schedule we'll see if that works out um as as I found multiple times doing this podcast sometimes plans don't work out like that depends on people's availability and all, all sorts of other things but yeah I'm I, I've got this idea that I'm gonna gonna plan things out it'll make me make it easier to to have episodes more regularly we'll see if that works so yeah next year is going to be good I hope of course another thing that has the potential to help with uh regularity of episodes is is the support that uh somebody very kindly give me on patreon if you'd like to help support me doing this podcast um then head to patreon.com slash utopian horizons uh, and if you sign up there you get access to a whole whole host of um bonus episodes that are already up there and of course the ones that i will be continuing to do and as ever if you've been enjoying this ratings and reviews on itunes would be very helpful 
I think that would do uh, do for an intro for now. Um, as I said, I don't think I'll squeeze another main episode in this year. So yeah, have a nice holiday and um, hopefully I'll see you in 2021, which will hopefully be a better year for all of us in many ways and a good year for the podcast as well. So let's move on to my conversation with Vincent and Anitra. Joining me now are Vincent Leger and Anitra Nelson. They are the authors of a book which came out recently called Exploring Degrowth, A Critical Guide. Um, And we're going to be talking about that book and the concept of um, degrowth today. So first of all, thank you very much for joining me, uh, Vincent and Anitra. Hello. Hi. Um, So the first first, uh, thing I'd like to ask you, there may be people listening to this who have no idea at all what degrowth is. So it'd be helpful if you could give us a, a kind of just a kind of a rough definition of, of what degrowth is. And presumably, the, the very fact that you've written a book about this now would suggest that degrowth is particularly relevant at this point for some reason. So um, uh, and it's kind of a, a, a um, concept that that may be on the rise in, in some sense. So it'd be also useful to hear why that is. Yes, yeah, so uh, I start quickly. Uh, uh, usually I give three definitions uh, of degrowth. The first one is a provocative slogan. The second one is a set of thoughts connecting together a lot of uh, ideas, theories, uh, uh, schools of thoughts, uh, implementing debate to deconstruct a lot of toxic concepts and uh, parallelly to start to open our mind and uh, and to construct a new world based on other principles. And the third one is like a new activist, political, academic, intellectual uh, movement with people experimenting degrowth on different levels. And I, I will stop a bit longer on the slogan because very often it's uh, misunderstood or, or sometimes uh, misinterpreted. And it was really invented in the beginning of the 2000s in France by somebody coming from a marketing for advertisement business uh, to create a type of provocative slogan which cannot be co-opted by the dominant system. And in that time, we started to very slowly uh, speak uh, about um, climate change, biodiversity loss, and and maybe uh, limits to growth. Uh, And he started to see how the system start to co-opt or start to reappropriate or to empty the debates around these issues uh, in using terms like sustainable development, and after we had a lot of other type of uh, positive slogan, which been one after the other one emptied from its content, and he saw that we need a type of slogan which is really radical, which is taking the problem from the roots, and which is really attacking a lot of implicit beliefs around the religion of growth, around a lot of uh, um, religions to development, to uh, progress, to um, uh, always more, what you can see all around in advertisement in our uh, uh, dominant system. And degrowth uh, first was really this slogan, provocative slogan, not, co- not be- being able to be co-opted, inviting us for uh, ex- uh, tough debates about uh, our model of society, uh, which is totally addicted to growth, and to open our mind, to make a step aside, to start to question the right question, and to switch from a, a very reductionist uh, only quantitative approach to our society when we try to measure based on economic indicators 
what is well-being and to get rid of that and to go more to debates which would be much more qualitative, much more complex about uh, uh, how to achieve meaningful lives, how to achieve uh, meaningful activities, how to question what are our basic needs and how do we fulfill these basic needs in a sustainable but mostly in a desirable way. Okay, thanks. Um, Anitra, is there, is there anything you'd like to, to add on to that? Yes, well, I often explain it as decreasing materials and energy use, but at the same time, decreasing inequalities between people. And that means political power is also more equitable within degrowth, where we look at autonomous and horizontalist forms of political power. One of the interesting things that I think about introducing the term degrowth is that now that we've had the COVID-19 pandemic throughout the world, a lot of people living in more comfortable circumstances are more aware of actually what basic needs really mean because they've actually had to think about it themselves. It has created a situation where people have been forced to consider that in a way they haven't before. Indeed. I think people are also now very aware that we have these very long and insecure supply chains in terms of the goods and services that they require and the whole degrowth idea of open relocalization, of concentrating on basic needs, respecting people, being concerned about health. These are all very important things and it's much clearer to people why and how they're important. Sure. Thanks. Um, so something that uh, this is something you you um, focus in on quite early in the book, uh, and you've you've already mentioned this a bit, Vincent, um, about misconceptions that can can come up around degrowth. So um, I think it'd be while we're early on, this would be a good place to to try and make sure that uh, listeners aren't. Um, aren't going to kind of uh, buy into those misconceptions or, or misunderstand what it is because I think it's very easy when you hear the term degrowth um, and you you've talking about uh, moving away from growth and, and things like this it's very easy to read it as a kind of uh, like a, a primitivism or something of, of like um, I think in, in the in the book you say to, to, to think of it in terms of austerity and poverty and, and things like that so yeah could you could you Talk about some of those, those misconceptions and kind of uh, dispel some of those. Yeah, two things. Uh, when you see first the reaction, in particular from uh, uh, the elites, from uh, technocratic spheres and so on, toward degrowth, they will start to panic. And it shows why this word was really the right word, because it's really attack, uh, attacking uh, a lot of implicit beliefs. It's really attacking a type of religion which was not questioned anymore. And um, that's what is main goal. And these misunderstandings are coming from the fact that uh, we have to fight against a religion. And it's very difficult to, uh, to attack beliefs with rational argumentation. And it's somehow the mission of degrowth, where uh, we entered into a model of civilization where we saw that uh, with secularism and liberalism and uh, market economy and type of uh, so-called uh, rationality around economics that we we were in type of rational society 
uh, where there was no religion anymore. And actually, we entered into another type of religion. This is the religion of Homo economicus, the religion of economicism, the religion of always more, of GDP growth, and so on. And uh, degrowth is a fantastic uh, provocative slogan for that. And of course, it creates all this misunderstanding because it doesn't take uh, only the time to uh, see a slogan, to uh, deconstruct a lot of concepts which have been constructed in the last decades. Uh, a lot of concepts on which our imaginary, social, political imaginary has been constructed uh, in the last decades, which is everywhere in the center of our social organization, in the narratives you will find on uh, mass media, in advertisement, in the way we construct our human interaction in, around the work, around our exchanges, and so on. And uh, it sometimes makes it... Um, tough to deal with degrowth and sometimes we feel that we are wasting time because we always have to explain the same and so on. I really believe that the, most of the attacks what we get uh, in particular sometimes from a, a leftist France or uh, closer movements but from everybody are a bit unfair because if you take time to just go to Wikipedia or to uh, Google degrowth after two minutes of reading you will see that degrowth is not about recession. That degrowth is not about uh, uh, going back to the to the cave, but degrowth is really about emancipi emancipation. It's really about uh, decolonizing our uh, growth economicist imaginary to be emancipated and to start to uh, open debates about what really matters, what makes sense, how to uh, uh, rethink our ways of life in a way which will be sustainable. So uh, to radically reduce our environmental impact and. Whatsoever we have to do it, it will happen, even we do it in a democratically chosen way or it will happen in a barbar barbarian way imposed by recession and maybe it's what we are experiencing now. And, uh, and this, in reducing it, it's also about how to refocus ourselves on what really makes sense, what's the most important for well-being. And there it's not an um, easy answer, it's not an easy question, but it's more based on deliberative democracy, it's more based on an individual, collective, political journey to deconstruct a lot of uh, concepts, a lot of toxic concepts, and to reappropriate them or to invent new concepts about uh, like ecofeminism, about care, about uh, uh, conviviality, about autonomy, about open relocalization, about another type of relationship toward our activities, uh, another, another type of relationship towards the tools, towards the environment, the time, uh, how to deal with uh, intergenerational uh, interaction, cultural diversity, and so on. And degrowth is uh, an invitation to debate about all these type of things. Um, Anitra, if, if you've got anything to add to that, please do. But but also maybe you could, um, uh, Vincent mentioned there about attacks on degrowth or misunderstandings of degrowth, uh, also coming from, from the left. Um, now, I think you don't have to, uh, it doesn't take too, imagine it, too much imagination to, to, to think why uh, a idea which is talking about creating more equality and so on and so forth might be attacked from the right. That's um, fairly obvious. But you wouldn't necessarily expect expect it to receive hostility from the left, given that having read the read the book, um, a lot of the ideas are perfectly um, fit perfectly well with with many kind of different ideas or concepts on the left. So you wouldn't necessarily expect that. So I wonder if the, you you could think of any particular reason why there might be this hostility also from the left. I think that 
there is really just a residual concentration by some older leftists on the idea that social change would be managed by a state and that mm -hmm. also industrialization is important in and of itself and that growth is somehow mixed up and in with industrialization. So those are the kinds of ways I think that certain leftists become quite curious about what is degrowth. And I do think it's also territorial. It's like there's we've discovered something, we've got a position, why isn't our position good enough for you or whatever? I mean, I suppose there are some extra things that I'd sort of say about degrowth too. And that is, is that growth is seen very much in a quantitative and linear way. And there are numbers um, of Marxists who are into quite economistic ways of looking at what our problems are and what change will be like. And so, again, I think that they fall into a trap, even though they might have really great critiques of development, they still fall into some of the ways of thinking that are very akin to the kind of cultural growthism that we have in our society. So degrowth is much more about quality than it is about quantity. And on the other hand, I think that there are many leftists who once you engage with them about what degrowth is, they can actually see all of the parallels between the left, even in a quite traditional way, and you threw in the term ecofeminism, which of course started back in the 1970s. And a lot of the ideas of ecofeminists in terms of caring to some extent predated the um, degrowth movement as an actual movement, but not mm. degrowth ideas as such. So ecosocialism has, I think, a lot of synergies with degrowth. But what you'll find is, is, is that a lot of the problems are around the economics of it, which is actually quite an interesting area. Yeah, I would add that we go back to a debate which were somehow abandoned or uh, forgotten in the late uh, 19th century, when, on, when the union movement and left movement uh, uh, ignored or strongly fought against another approach of socialism, I think about utopian socialism, a type of uh, socialist anarchism. I think about the famous book uh, of uh, the son-in-law of Karl Marx, uh, Paul Lafargue, The Right to Be Lazy. And uh, there was an approach which was not about uh, fighting for the rights of the worker in the factories, but rather to uh, destroy the factories and to question work and to question uh, centrality of work in our social organization and so on. And somehow degrowth is inviting us to go back to this type of uh, debates. And among the degrowth pioneers, you will find a lot of uh, uh, Marxists who became very critical with Marxism. Uh, I think about Karl Polanyi, I think about Cornelius Castoriadis and his famous um, uh, journal in the 1950s 
uh, socialism of barbarity, socialism of barbarity, strongly criticizing uh, Stalinism. Uh, I think about André Gors, uh, who uh, wrote in the 1970s uh, radical critiques of uh, pro proletarianism, of the work value in the left movement and so on. And, and Degros is really questioning everything and also questioning a lot of things which were not questioned enough or not questioned anymore uh, among our left uh, friend circles. And uh, uh, of course, it creates some uh, tough debate. But uh, if I look about what's happened in France, where Degros first started, uh, we got strong critiques in the beginning from unions, from left parties and so on. And now I would say that we have a good uh, cooperation with each other and a lot of Degros ideas, which were first strongly rejected or uh, on purpose uh, uh, demonized or misinterpreted, are taken into account uh, in their political agenda. Uh, and there is no left uh, serious uh, politicians or intellectuals who is not interested in degrowth anymore. Okay, cool. Um, so obviously, um, the one of the it's it's in the name like one of the key ideas that you're dealing with is the the, the concept of of growth, which is the degrowth is obviously explicitly in opposition to. Uh, could you talk about there's, there's quite a lot in the book about the way you kind of conceptualize growth as like a dominant ideology? Um, could you could, so could you talk a bit about that and what kind of hold growth has and an idea what why why you see that as, as a threat and why this is kind of such a key thing to address i think from the point of view of the limits of the earth which we're facing at the moment this is the really massive kind of problem in terms of growth and the most clear problem that growth dynamics have for our societies so Throughout my life, in the last 50 years, most years, the population has consumed more of the earth than it's capable of regenerating. And, mm. and so that's actually been happening for two generations. And that shows you how powerful, in many ways, economic ideas and growth are. That's something that is logically completely challenging your capacity to keep living is not actually being taken seriously at a political level as well as an economic level. Yeah, gross. Uh, I will take my uh, mathematician or uh, my engineer uh, hat. Uh, gross is mathematically something totally absurd because you calculate a percentage of uh, um, increase from one year to another one. And for example, if you think about what every economist or politician dream about, let's say, 3% of growth uh, every year, which means that we will have to multiply our economy by 20 by the end of the century. So 20 uh, times more cars, highways, airplanes, uh, computers, whatsoever. So from a mathematical point of view, it's something which is totally absurd. And, uh, and uh, from a cultural point of view, it's something which is totally uh, uh, making us blind and perverts our understanding of what really happened. And for me, it's very interesting to see uh, economists or politicians who don't understand anything about mathematics to keep on speaking about growth without knowing that uh, with that absurd approach, 
we are just running quicker and quicker to the wall. Uh, the other point is that uh, economic growth is unable to uh, analyze qualitatively what we do. Like, for example, if we met today and we were not online talking, and uh, I took my car to, uh, to go to visit you to make this interview and I had a car accident, it would have been great for economic growth. Uh, if I went by bike and I had a nice ride without an accident and so on, it would have been totally uh, uh, no impact for economic growth. And economic growth is adding a lot of things which could be totally contradictory. Some of the things are good for well-being, our living together, our democracy, our enjoyment of life. But a lot of other ones are more about uh, uh, destroying the environment, are more about uh, uh, calculating only what you can economically calculate and so on. And it makes us be, uh, behave like homo economicus, behave like a very uh, reductionist type of human beings who sees all the problem looking like an economic problem. Mark Twain said that if you have a hammer in your head, you will see all the problem looking like nails. And the hammer we have is economy, is with uh, uh, all these mat mathematical uh, indicators. And we really believe that if you have economic growth or if you have a, a positive economic indicator, you will be happy. And life is much more complex than that. And moreover, more growth means more problems, means more uh, environment damage, with more uh, uh, exploitation of people, more exploitation of limited resources and so on. And the last point, because Anitra already mentioned the question of inequalities, for decades, growth was a fantastic uh, tool for the oligarchic system, for the elites, for the politicians, to uh, don't deal seriously with the question of inequalities and inequalities and the question of how to share. Uh, because with economic growth, you can have a very uh, unfair world with the strong inequalities because the poor people still believe that with growth sooner or later they will also become rich or you always produce even more when you get even more small extra what you can or surplus what you can share with other people and no there is no growth anymore and i would say that we should even decrease our uh, uh, level of productions and so on so it means that we should handle and we should really uh, seriously speak about redistribution about sharing about uh, uh, the sense of the limits, uh, which is uh, quite tough for the richest people. And uh, it makes me think about uh, one of the last surveys published by Oxfam in September, showing that the 1% of the richest people are producing two times more greenhouse gases than the 50% of the poorest people. And degrowth is really about that. It's really about uh, uh, when you speak about going back to an environmentally uh, sustainable way of life, it means to attack or to question the way of life of the richest and to redistribute and to share. And it's not only to do less uh, with less, but it's more about uh, to do less differently in a better way, to uh, in sharing better, in enjoying better what we do. Yeah, I think that's an important aspect for people to be aware of that, you, um, that, that comes across in the book that you always, when you're talking about degrowth and in terms of whatever reducing production or, or something it's always tied into this question of inequality so it's not in this uh, general sense of like just oh, everybody to get it, it's, it has an awareness of like inequality and the effect that that has on um, environmental crisis and and the importance of addressing inequality uh as a necessary part of of, of um dealing with that um 
Yeah, and something, I mean, even the the idea of growth is so uh, tied in, so tied into the way we measure like success and progress, like the, the, the obviously the, the primacy of um, GDP as um, if GDP is going up, then everybody assumes that's good. <laughs> There's no consideration of what where that's being distributed, what that means in practice. So yeah, it feels like it's really difficult to get away from these ideas. Um, you, you also say that it's even hard it's hard to actually it's hard to even imagine an economy without growth because it's so tied into how we think about uh economics right it's a religious belief so it's it's very ingrained and it doesn't need to be logical because it's something that we've been taught so much ever since we were at school. We had to get the best marks. We had to run the hardest and the furthest and all of those kinds of things. So it's very deeply ingrained in our culture. And we have a lot of very negative associations with anything that is in a degrowth direction like acting modestly, acting humbly, not taking too much. All of those things are actually looked at as puritanical, all sorts of really basically negative kinds of ways. Yes, and I, I mean, again, in a sense, I, I think it's really great to have this provocative word degrowth because the more that you talk about it, I think you actually get quite a long way in terms of breaking down how people are thinking about and framing, you know, their experiences and all of these associations that are really very cultural. Can we, uh, can we delve into, because you, you've both mentioned this, I want to delve into it a bit more. You, you've talked about the, the, how provocative degrowth is, is as a word. You've, you've both talked about you talked about the difficulty of appropriating it in the same way as some other terms. So I just wanted to, so you, so you mentioned like sustainable and uh, uh, eco and um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I presume, but I believe what you're talking about when you're talking about it being co-opted, you're talking about the way that um, terms like eco and sustainable have become terms that uh, can be used in like marketing even like um, uh, fossil fuel companies will do stuff in their advertising when they'll talk about how they're doing some eco thing or uh, you know sustainable stuff. So even the even the very even the very companies like most responsible for for climate change can use these these terms that are meant to deal with the climate crisis for their own benefit. Why is it that degrowth is um, resistant to that why do you think it can't be appropriated or corrupted in the, the same way so we, we could see in the last two decades when uh, we started to speak about the physical limits to growth and the environmental problem it uh, questions from climate change to biodiversity loss I think about uh, acidification of ocean I think about how we are destroying the soil for agriculture I think about uh, chemical pollutions, etc., etc. Uh, all the big data analysis used by uh, uh, large corporations uh, show to them that people are more and more aware 
of these problems and are more and more in a dynamic to buy uh, stuffs which won't harm or which will reduce how much we harm the planet. So they had two options. Even they started to produce uh, really sustainable things uh, in doing it locally, maybe more crafted, uh, using uh, uh, local resources. So if you do that, it means that you have also to reduce uh, the performance of the product. You have to reduce a lot of uh, scale of economy. You have to reduce the exploitation of the people and so on. And we could see in the last two decades a lot of slogans uh, parallelly to degrowth which appeared. Some of them directly came from uh, uh, corporations or uh, uh, business, so were made uh, on purpose to make green social washing, but some of them and most of them were uh, really implemented and uh, uh, driven by a sincere people. But we could see how from one uh, to the other one, the system reappropriated it. And I, if you think about uh, organic labelization, if you think about fair trade labelization, if you think about sustainable development, green, uh, convivial, uh, sustainable uh, adjectives put before any product, or if you look at uh, the, the packaging, all the packaging became green in the last decade. But behind the processes, the, pro the production didn't change at all, even maybe became even worse. But still, the system is trying to sell you everything. And it will be much more difficult and take maybe much more time for the uh, corporations and the marketing to use degrowth as a slogan to sell you a car, to sell you a, a degrowth uh, journey in an air-conditioned hotel by a green airplane in uh, Tunisia, for example. So degrowth uh, is really an invitation for serious debate. Uh, it's really a demanding uh, slogan because it pushes you to go to see behind. Where sustainable development, you saw that I don't have to question anything, I can do the same uh, green. Uh, like fair trade, I can do the same, but more respectuous to the people. Like organic, I can do the same, but it's, it's a green uh, packaging, it's written organic, so it should be... Uh, it should be wonderful, and uh, degrowth is really pushing you to scrutinize what really, what really behind. And I think about uh, advertisement, which is quite fascinating to sell cars. I don't say the label here. Uh, and the advertisement, it's a nice uh, comics uh, animation showing a happy family going by car with that car that they want to sell, going by car with the bikes on the roof of the car. Uh, and the children and so on, to go to ride happily in a beautiful forest, bike in the forest. And you can see that uh, uh, how the marketing is working. People know that we should stop using car. People know that happiness will come more to, to ride bicycle in the forest and so on. But still, we are in this model of society. We still need a car. So the car industry will use what we, um, we want to we wanna do, the type of society we want to go through, to sell us something that we want to get rid about and degrowth is also inviting us to uh, deconstruct i think what is on one of the most toxic tools of this dominant system it's quite funny because when we speak about trump when we speak about conspiracy theory and so on we we, we speak about fake news but we live in a society which is organized around fake news which are totally legitimized it's called advertisement because advertisement it's only about fake news it's only about uh, uh, selling lies it's only about manipulating our brains uh, to uh, desire things what we don't really need uh, in playing with fears, in playing with infantilization, in playing with uh, 
uh, a lot of uh, stupid things like sexism, like uh, domination, like performance, and so on. And degrowth from its origin is really connected to ad buster movement and was really sought to be protected from uh, this uh, toxic uh, business which tries to uh, empty from its content everything. Yes, I think that uh, degrowth is in its very essence, it's anti-capitalist. So we're going not just to post-growth, we're going post-capitalist. So in that's, in, from that point of view, uh, degrowth can't be co-opted in the same way as you can talk about sustainable capitalism and you can talk about eco-capitalism or whatever. In fact, probably a good term to bring in here is steady state economy because there's a position of being able to keep capitalism in this kind of good zone of producing not too much, producing enough but not too much. In actual fact, from where I come from, um, and I did my PhD on Karl Marx's concept of money, and I'm very aware of the ways in which money actually operates within businesses only through making more money. There's actually no way that you can monitor whether your business is going okay or not in comparison with other businesses unless you're actually trying to make more money. So degrowth, because it's very much about sufficiency and enough, is completely different from growth. It's not just, in a sense, the reverse of it or turning it upside down. It's almost like it's a different animal. But it does, it does, it's, it's like in the game of scissors, stone and paper, degrowth actually kills growth. Yeah. Anitra, one thing you, you mentioned there um, about like uh, keeping capitalism within like a, a kind of... A kind of a reasonable level or, or whatever something which I think ties in with this that you you talked about in in the book um was was a a critique not so much of renewable energy per se but of a certain way of thinking about renewable energy and how it was used um you were talking about the idea of decoupling um could you maybe explain what that means and could you could you talk us through that critique of of why we need to be careful about the way we think of renewable energy as a as a potential solution to to climate crisis i think that vincent it'd probably be better to answer this question but just to get it going i mean basically you can have a more efficient way for instance of creating a car and all that happens, given that you've got the same amount of money slushing around the system, is that people buy two cars more easily or they'll make lots of new features on the car. So there are lots of very weird ways in which the kind of monetary economy that we've, we have, a market-based economy, 
because it takes it's absolutely completely different from any form of monitoring social or environmental values it's a completely different kind of system overlaid on any kind of social or environmental needs that we notice yeah i spoke before about fake news and uh, i think we live in a world of fake news not only the one the mass media keeps on speaking about and which are quite frightening but the one uh, you read in serious newspaper or in the mouth of uh, a so-called serious politician and uh, our reports made by uh, all the big international uh, institutions like OECD, the, Commission, the European Commission, uh, for example, uh, United Nations and everything, where all our economy and all our political institutions and uh, uh, perspectives are based on this bet that we will be able to keep on going with economy growth and substantial economy growth in reducing uh, our environmental impact. Uh, and thanks to uh, smart technology, green technologies and so on, and all the scientific literature about that, which seriously analyzed this bet, shows that it's a lie. There is no chance for uh, such a decoupling where we will be able to keep on going with the same way of life, the same level of production and consumption, uh, in reducing enough our environmental impact to avoid the worst catastrophes. So everything is around that, and it's really a belief. And I, I, I remember the inauguration uh, speech at the uh, Assemblée Nationale of the new Prime Minister of Macron, Jean Castex. He said something very interesting. He didn't say that uh, based on the work of our experts uh, who analyze the situation, we should uh, go with economic growth or green growth. He said that uh, I believe in green growth and I don't believe in, uh, in uh, sustainable degrowth or something like that. And uh, it's really a belief. And the problem in that, and it's a very, it's a tragedy about us, that around this belief, we are accelerating to a big catastrophes. And uh, what we have to understand, and I won't make a long presentation, I can take back my uh, engineer hat, that we live a particular part of our history. When 150 years ago, we started to use uh, massively uh, limited stock of almost free energy called fossil energy. And everything what we have around us, uh, all the uh, things going through the the lines to talk to each other today, the electricity for computers, how computers were made to talk to each other, the light around us, uh, the furniture I'm sitting on, the food I had in the morning for my breakfast, etc., etc. Everything around that is uh, around 80% fossil energy, and in particular uh, oil, uh, which is a fantastic energy. You can stock, you can transport. Uh, it's uh, very highly concentrated in energy and so on, but it's a limited stock, which was an accumulation of solar energy on the planet for millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of years. And on one side, you have a few generations exploiting this huge amount of energy, which, which is coming from millions of productions, and which is a limited stock again. And uh, we won't be able to substitute this fossil energy by renewable energy, because behind renewable energy, you have um, uh, energy return on investment, which is very low, which means that for one joule 
but to produce this energy, you get not so many joules. Where for oil, it's fantastic from an energetic point of view, and uh, and also behind you just push push the problem to something else. If you think about uh, how much money is invested in research and in development of electric um, transport system, you put a big pressure on lithium. You put a big pressure on a lot of metals. Uh, which create a lot of social conflicts, which create a lot of extractivism, where behind, again, you will find oil. And uh, I really invite everybody to really take time to analyze all these figures, to analyze uh, energetically what does it mean, the world we are living in, and to take time to read the reports. We, we published a report uh, one year ago, which was called Debunking uh, Decoupling. And I really invite the people to read this report, because uh, all around us, everything is going on this bet that we will be able to, de to have a decoupling of our economies, where it will never happen. Uh, and uh, the more we try to go there, the more the catastrophes will be terrible. This is a kind of a big, big part of the challenge that degrowth presents then, right? That, that, and, and I wonder if you think this makes it potentially difficult to convince people that it's necessary because the idea that we don't have to change our lives fundamentally, we can just slot in renewable energy and we don't have to do anything and we can continue as normal. That's quite an appealing idea. Um, degrowth seems to, to present a more fundamental challenge to that. Say, no, you have to change everything or everyday practices, not just your beliefs, like your practices, uh, how, your, how your whole life is structured. Yeah, it feels like that might make it more of a difficult sell, if you see what I mean. I think that people are really very habitual. They're very attached to doing what they've all always done. And that might seem really strange within capitalism where it's quite common that people think that capitalism is all about new things all the time and it's all about innovation. But in actual fact, the structure of what people are doing is very ingrained and it's been like this for centuries. And I think it's one of the reasons that uh, within the degrowth movement, we talk a lot about decolonizing our imaginaries. And our imaginaries, in that sense, are framing things. And so we also try and break through a lot of the habitual kind of thinking about, for instance, thinking that we can't feel secure, that we won't be comfortable without having a kind of abundance that's associated with the word growth. So in degrowth, we talk about frugal abundance and a lot of people get a lot of joy and curiosity out of hearing the term frugal abundance and also conviviality and caring because these are all the kinds of areas that we don't have experience of in capitalism but the degrowth offers and the more that you think about it and the more that you practice it the more that you realize that sharing and caring and actually being more frugal means that there's more left for you and for other people. So all the sorts of things that make you understand 
that degrowth is something that offers a lot more security and fulfillment of everyone's basic needs potentially than the kind of system that we have within capitalism. And I, and I guess the, an abundance of what you were talking about, like more qualitative things. Yes. And it's actually all really enjoying what you have in the same way as slow movement is all about slow food, really enjoying your food for what it is, all about the quality of things, but it's all about sharing as well and slowing things down. So, so yeah, and so you're, you're getting you're getting kind of experiences and uh, relationships uh, and forms of relationships that are sparse under capitalism at, 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 the, at the moment that provide a, a different kind of value to, the, to, to a kind of, yeah, yeah, quantitative value that makes complete sense. Well, look, the point is, is, is that capitalism and growth are weasel words in the ways in which they're often used. They're used in ways that they're associated with freedom and having in and having yeah. things. But in actual fact, as in the sort of 1%, 99% and the growing inequality that we have, and it's a growing inequality in power where, where people, people's actual say in politics is often reduced to a vote every couple of years for people who don't even represent the kind of position that they want represented anyway. So all of these aspects are really important. Yeah. Could you talk a bit, um, something that comes up frequently throughout the book is, is when you're talking about the kind of organisational characteristics of degrowth, uh, you also you often talk about it as being kind of inherently horizontal, non-hierarchical, decentralized. These these kind of things. Yeah, and there's, there's a sense that you're saying that uh, if I'm not misinterpreting, that it's kind of uh, inherently something inherent to to degrowth that makes it take those forms. So yeah, I just wanted to to ask like why these these things are important in degrowth. This kind of horizontalism, non-hierarchical, and so on and why that's kind of inherent to degrowth as a movement or an idea. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I would start like that because I was uh, speaking before uh, about the physical limits to growth, and I think it's very important to underline, underline that, that uh, even if degrowth is very consistent on the physical limits to growth, and we have a lot of publications, and one of the pioneers of degrowth was maybe one of the... Um, best intellectual questioning our economic model and the limits to growth, I think, about Nicolas Georges Kurogan and his famous article, The Entropilo and the Economic Process. So even if we are very con consistent scientifically, physically, energetically, economically about uh, uh, the impossibility to keep on going with economic growth, uh, I would say that uh, the most important are really the cultural limits to growth. And I, in the French degrowth movement, we often say that even if infinite growth on a finite planet would be possible, we should question whether it makes sense. And then we enter into all uh, the topics what you are questioning about, really to question uh, how to reorganize a society in a desirable way. And if you look a lot, at, there are a lot uh, nowadays a lot of converging surveys showing that the people 
they don't feel themselves anymore in this overconsumption. They don't feel themselves anymore in this uh, organization of work. They don't feel themselves anymore in this uh, way of life when you are always stressed, when you, are, you always need to, uh, to be quicker, to live further, to uh, transport yourself more and more, to go to your work, to go, to, uh, to go shopping, to go to uh, meaningful activities or unmeaningful activities and so on. And I would say there we should open a lot of debates about uh, how to slow down, how to reappropriate democracy, how to reappropriate the tools, how to reappropriate meaningful life, how to reappropriate time, how to rethink uh, the role of care and how do we give more value, cultural value to care, which is very central in our uh, everyday life, how to make visible the invisible uh, in this um, economic model, most of the the most important things for our well-being are invisibilized uh, because they are not calculated into the GDP. We, I, I speak about friendship, I speak about uh, informal solidarity, I speak about education to the children, I think about how do we care about each other, how do we care about the elderly people, how do we help each other if you see an accident, if you see somebody in trouble and so on. All these things are not put visible and um, there we start to, to question uh, a lot of things about uh, uh, what are our real basic needs and uh, how to fulfill them. And the best way to do that in a sustainable and desirable way, it's really to uh, go back to small is beautiful, to go back to uh, our relocalization of our production, exchange and so on. Because it's not only that you, uh, uh, you can do it in a much more convivial way and enjoy it, but you can reappropriate, if it's smaller, if it's more local, you can reappropriate a conscious understanding of the impact of your choices. We live in a society which is based on the illusion of freedom to consume. You, know, you will go to a supermarket and I don't judge the people, it's not a moralist statement, I do it myself time to time. So you will go to a supermarket or a shop and you will buy things because you never face uh, what the reality of it behind. You never face the uh, environmental damage which is made to produce this product and you never meet with the people who are exploited uh, to produce what you, you would buy and consume. And in such a smaller scale or relocalized scale, uh, much more uh, horizontal and democratic social organization, you will be uh, pushed to be responsibilized. You will be pushed to reappropriate the consciousness of your decision. And you won't uh, decide to consume this product or this one because it costs less money or because it uh, uh, defends your interest, but you will do it because it makes sense. And you will do it because you participate or you, you have a close contact with the people and the environment which participates in the production on these things. So you find a type of coherency between these questions about more direct democracy, about uh, more self-organization, about small is beautiful, about tools for conviviality, about autonomy, about care economy, etc. Uh, it's very consequent with the physical limits to growth that we have to handle because uh, you would behave totally differently. And the last point about frugal abundance, we managed to create a society of overconsumption with frustration. So we are living in a society of uh, frustrated overabundance where we should go to a society of frugal abundance because there is only one abundance which could work. That's the one which is able to individually, collectively, politically uh, implement, self-implement limits. And uh, degrowth is really about the limits. 
to be happy, you have to implement uh, your self-limits and also this self-implementation of limits works better in a direct democratic model. I think degrowth is, uh, is very much about people organising what is produced, how it's produced and who it's produced for. And from that point of view, therefore, you have to have, instead of a politics of management, which is the sort of politics that we have in our parliaments, as well as in our workplaces, we need to have the kind of forms of organisation that are very common, in fact, in the transformative movements of the 21st century. They're horizontal, they're non-hierarchical, they're decentralised because they're ways of sharing power. So in terms of the of, of horizontal organising, do you see any problems or, or contradictions there in terms of obviously climate change being this massive global problem that that we need to address and then we're talking about kind of horizontal solutions it's often linked to like local action and things like that and it makes me think of movements like occupy which which obviously also had a kind of horizontal structure uh, i don't want to say that i don't want to say that occupy didn't have any any effect um i think it certainly had at the very least it had some kind of long-term effect in like um, politicizing a, a certain generation but in terms of winning like specific winning like specific concessions or something like that occupy kind of kind of struggled to to get anywhere in that direction so do you do you see any potential problems there in ter- in terms of this um degrowth as like this horizontal localized movement and the the global uh nature of of climate change and the, the kind of problems that need to be addressed i'm a great believer in horizontal and non-hierarchical and decentralized ways of Uh, organising because those were the kinds of organisational methods that we used in the women's movement, late 60s, early 70s, and they were very, very successful ultimately. They never seemed to be to begin with because people identify the centralised national level as if something happens there in somehow magically great and widespread change is going to happen. But when you actually analyse transformative change, there's an amazing number of examples of where those movements have actually relied on very, very strong grassroots activities. So, for instance, if we look at someone like Trump being in power, In Australia, we have uh, a Liberal Prime Minister and they're delaying doing really nothing or even turning everything back in terms of climate action. We've got councils that are declaring climate emergencies. We've got a lot of activism on the ground, a lot of people who are joining together and working out what they can do in various different ways. And I really think that these kinds and forms of organising are particularly important when you need to have cultural change and when you need to have massive action because it's a way of people being very aware and immediately taking on power and ultimately 
I believe that these are the best ways of organizing. Okay. I think just uh, one one final question would be a nice place to, to close off. Um, you, you kind of give a, a bit of a, a picture in the book of, of what a degrowth world might look like. Um, partly you talk about some kind of proto degrowth forms. Um, could you could you maybe try and give us like a, a, a rough outline of of what a, a degrowth world would look like to live in? Like what are the kinds of things that, that would ex- exist in, in that world? I'm happy to go ahead with that and uh, maybe to speak about my daily life in Budapest where I am not uh, uh, in the in the trains to go to t- give talks everywhere about degrowth. But uh, I think degrowth is really about how to find a better balance in your everyday life between your head and your hands and uh, to have a very large diversity of activities and uh, connections all day long. It's not about uh, uh, illusion of happiness through consumption, but really to, uh, uh, to understand that what makes you happy, it's really social and human interaction. And uh, to care, to be solidar, to uh, help each other, to do a large diversity of things, to have the satisfaction that you could contribute to your communities and so on. And, uh, and uh, for example, now today, I will just give the example of my daily life. Uh, today, I am now making this podcast with you just after we go to uh, uh, join the team in our uh, agroforestry uh, garden in Zuglo in the district of Budapest. And we will, uh, we will make some mulch to prepare for the winter, to have a fertile soil in the, in the, in the, in, in the next summer. And it's a time when we will also eat together. We will have good time together in the cold, being happy, talking, debating about the society, what to do, and so on. After, in the afternoon, I will have more like uh, meetings with the local municipality of districts in Budapest to speak about uh, what kind of project we can implement with each other. And after, before the lockdown starts, we will go out uh, for a walk with some friends and talk and have a drink. And I think Degros society should be about that. More low-tech, more simple, more local production, and a much more diversity of uh, uh, tasks, uh, of uh, enjoyment of life, of creativity. Uh, low-tech and permaculture doesn't mean that we stop uh, dealing with innovation. On the contrary, we have to uh, reappropriate type of innovation which is not based on high-tech and to be depossessed from uh, our uh, uh, tools and uh, understanding and knowledge of the things. But uh, on the contrary, to, um, to really reappropriate the things and to enjoy doing the things. And, uh, me, I quit the dominant world. I'm quite privileged. I could do that. I could quit my jobs with very high salaries, uh, high social uh, uh, position, and so on. And I, I have the opportunity, you know, thanks to my friends, thanks to the network I am in, to really have this enjoyment of life in uh, being very creative every day, having a very large diversity of experience, and not to be sitting eight hours. Uh, eight hours a day in front of a computer and being stressed because I have a deadline to send a report, nobody will read all this type of thing. So I will say degrowth will be really about that and, and to have much more time for each other, to have much more time for intergenerational interaction, to, to do it yourself and to share it yourself and to do it together. Actually, what, what other thing as well that you um, you pointed out was there's this kind of uh, some convenient ways that um, degrowth ideas link up with trends in the culture in general 
So there, it feels like there might be some opportunity there in terms of, of kind of winning people over. So stuff like um, vegetarianism, which people, which is, is more and more popular and not necessarily because people are like thinking about degrowth or anything like that. People might just be doing it because it's more healthy or, uh, you know, uh, more. Uh, which I, I think something you mentioned earlier, COVID as well may have had people doing stuff more locally, like they may be riding their bike more in like their local area so it feels like there's an opportunity there in terms of trends in the culture in general people people like the idea of getting food like locally i think in general like you sometimes see you know supermarkets now will have like local products or something so there is like people are i feel like people are perhaps amenable to like some of the ideas in degrowth and there's perhaps perhaps an uh, opportunity there if that makes sense definitely I think that's the, that's the case. And we have to be careful because no advertisement, if you go to a supermarket, all the food you can find is with uh, this type of label, like uh, uh, homemade, uh, handcrafted made, or made like uh, grandma, or locally made, and so on. So which, it shows that uh, people are expecting more and more of that. But unfortunately, our food uh, supply chain is far away from being designed for that. So degrowth is about uh, transforming this food. Uh, food system yeah but yeah i think there's there's, there's a hope that there de- de- there's um desires there that people already have that degrowth could perhaps uh take advantage of and, and fulfill in a more complete way uh that would be nice um okay well um thank you very thank you both very much for for talking to me um and as i mentioned at the beginning the the book is called exploring degrowth a critical guide and that's um published by pluto press so if if people are interested and wanted to find out some more about degrowth then uh then check out that book thanks very much thanks a lot thank you paul so that is the end of this episode i hope you have enjoyed it if so please consider giving me a quick rating and review on itunes and heading to patreon.com slash utopian horizons if you'd like to support me doing this podcast and to help me uh, keep on with, with what I'm doing. Like I said uh, up top, unlikely that I'll squeeze in another main episode this year. So uh, yeah, I hope you have a nice holiday and I'm planning to be back in 2021 with uh, lots more stuff. Oh, and if you want to get in touch with me um, for any reason, any feedback, any suggestions, you can follow me at twitter.com slash utopian horizons. Actually, I'm like, you know what? I'm not that far off a thousand followers on Twitter, but like, it's not really going up that much anymore. And I know why it's because I never tweet, but still would be nice. So, um, yeah, give me a follow on there. That'd be cool. Um, yeah. Also you can email me on utopian horizons pod at gmail.com. Yeah. So, uh, thanks for listening and I'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.